Gift Biz Unwrapped, episode 91. The bottom line was I wanted to make maple syrup sexier. Hi, this is John Lee Dumas of Entrepreneur on Fire, and you're listening to Gift Biz Unwrapped, and now it's time to light it up. Welcome to Gift Biz Unwrapped, your source for industry-specific insights and advice to develop and grow your business. And now, here's your host, Sue Monheit. Hi there, it's Sue, and welcome to the Gift Biz Unwrapped podcast. Whether you own a brick-and-mortar store, sell online, or are just getting started, you'll discover new insight to gain traction and to grow your business. Today, I have joining us Tim Burton of Burton's Maplewood Farm. Tim and Angie Burton are the owners of Burton's Maplewood Farm, located on 28 acres in the rolling hills of southern Indiana. They've been producing 100% pure and barrel-aged maple syrup on their farm for eight years. Most of their bulk syrup is featured on menus in Chicago, Los Angeles, Las Vegas, San Francisco, and Nashville. Their barrel-aged maple syrups are also offered online and at many farmer's markets throughout the U.S., and that happens to be where I met Tim a couple of weekends ago. I tried his syrup and was loving it, so I'm like, we've got to get him on the show. So welcome, Tim. Well, it's great to be with you today. I'm thrilled to have you. And as our listeners know, we like to start off by having you describe a motivational candle. It gives a little bit of a different feel into who you are. So if you were to describe your ideal motivational candle, what color would it be and what would be the quote on your candle? Well, you know, this is the first time I've ever been asked about a motivational candle. So I would say... Well, leave it to me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to go with copper. And the reason that I'm going with copper is, you know, we use wax. We dip all of our bottles in wax and we have a a couple different colors, but the barrel aged maple syrup is a copper wax. And if I were to have a motivational quote or something that I like to refer back to whenever there's any kind of a challenge is adversity does not build character, it reveals it. So I would say that would be the quote that I would have on that uh, candle. Right. Like that. That could give us some thought for sure. Sure. (laughs) So Tim, I know nothing about your story other than the little bit that I read at the show. And again, as I'd mentioned earlier, tasted your product. How did you get started in the syrup business? Well, Angie, my wife and I owned a systems integration business, a technology company. And uh, one of our Hewlett Packard technicians, Joe Evans, he had asked if he could knock off a little early. Uh, It was in February. So my management practices have always been not to manage with a bullwhip, but to make sure that everybody is accountable for themselves. And as long as the customers were taken care of, I was fine with any time of the day that you took off. And so Joe had asked if he could take off. And I said, sure. So one day turned into two days, turned into three days. And on that third day, I said to Joe, I said, you know, Joe, it's none of my business, but what are you doing? And he said, I'm having a blast. I'm going to the Miller's farm and I help them collect sap. And I said, as in maple sap? And he said, yeah, why don't you come along? So I said, you know what? I'll take you up on that. So I went to the Miller's Maple Farm. They gave me two five-gallon buckets and said, follow these guys. And it was almost like a scene out of a movie. I'm walking across a hay field heading towards the woods. And all at once, I see all around me these four-wheelers and uh, trucks with small tanks in the back of the bed of the trucks and things like that converging, going to the same area that I'm going to. 
we would all take these five-gallon buckets and empty the sap bags that were hanging on the trees into the five-gallon buckets. Then we'd transfer that over to the tanks. And then the small trucks and the four-wheelers would then transport all the sap from the maple trees back to the sugar house or the maple house. And so we did that and we wrapped up and then we all met back at the sugar house. It was very surreal because I kind of just stepped back and I was watching the whole group of people. And over one corner, there were a group of gals that were talking about different things. I know they were talking about stitching and maybe even <laughs> some local gossip. And and then, you know, here's here's a group of guys, <laughs> you know, cracking jokes and that type of thing. Then you've got another group of people hovering over the evaporator, which is used to reduce the sap into maple syrup. And I was just enamored by the whole process because this is something that's been happening for generations where friends, families, and neighbors all come together to help in something that's very labor intense. As my late Irish grandmother would say, it takes many hands to make light work. So all these friends, families, and neighbors would come together and then they would also benefit by getting some of the maple syrup. Well, this happened in many aspects of farming, whether you're processing cattle or pork or what have you. People, friends, families, and neighbors, they all came together. And then they divided the spoils of their efforts. And so I was just enamored by this whole process. And that's kind of what got things started. So a couple questions for you. Mm -hmm. So were the millers then doing this just to provide product to everybody who helped, or did they have a business going around the syrup as well? Not only for themselves and their friends and family, but they had a small business themselves. The Miller family consists of, I think there's eight children, big, big family. They're adults now, and now they have their kids. And so there's literally, I call it the Miller army, the Miller maple army. <laughs> and they all come together every year. And it's such a great time to be at their maple house because there's some really interesting personalities. And I think it's more of a social gathering. And there's so many people that just love to come out and hang out at the Miller farm. And it's grown. It's grown a lot. And I'm really pleased to be able to say that I've been a part of their growth as well. It sounds like such a Norman Rockwell moment, actually. <laughs> it is. So quick question, just to close up a little bit about how you identified that this was something that you were interested in. You did this for one day, and a lot of things can be really fun for one day. But when you actually start doing it regularly, it takes on its own shape, if you will. After that first day, did you go back a couple of times and really confirm to yourself that this is something that you may be interested in taking on? I did. This was not just one trip. I mean, I was over there for the season, which is a short period of time. It's only six weeks, but I did go over and make several visits and then basically came back to our farm where we lived and I started counting maple trees and then realized how many maple trees we have on our farm and then started to kick around the idea of uh, gathering the sap from our farm. And the first year that we gathered sap, we didn't reduce it. We didn't turn it into maple syrup. We sold it because we had to build the maple house and get an evaporator and so on and so forth. So, And my background is sales and marketing. And so I looked at this industry. That was one of the other things that enamored me about the whole process is I did not see on the market where there was anyone that was focusing on like a boutique high-end maple syrup. 80% of the entire global production of maple syrup comes out of Canada, and the other 20% comes out of the United States. 
there's only 15 states in the United States that produce maple syrup. So I did some marketing research to see if there were many maple syrup producers here in the United States that were actually going in and introducing themselves to these chefs, especially in such a food city like Chicago. And we're only five hours south of Chicago. So it amazed me that there was not a maple syrup producer that was actually attending these farmers markets in Chicago. I was I was absolutely blown away by that. Most maple syrup producers, they're farmers and they want to be on their farm and they want to produce their crops and that kind of thing. Going to the big city is not typically the highest on their priority list. Where for myself, I don't shy away from that, you know, uh I'm happy to go in and introduce myself and that kind of thing. So that's what I looked at as a huge opportunity for us to go to a major market like Chicago and introduce our product. This is a really important point, Tim, because there, and there's two things I want to say about this is, first of all, you're taking a skill that you already had when you were working with a tech company, right, which is sales and marketing and analyzing the opportunity for the product in the market. Just as you were saying, how much is there available? What are people doing? Where could your niche be? Which, of course, is local since there weren't a lot of U.S. companies doing this, and then also going into some of the major foodie markets, if you will, across the country, because we read that list in the beginning, and it's a lot of the real fancy foodie markets. Now, there's another thing that you do with the product that I think is really interesting, but before I get there, I want to also point out one other thing. Gift Biz listeners specifically, if you are now working a nine-to-five and you also are building up a product on the side... Don't think that the skills that you're doing during your day can't transfer over. That could be a huge benefit and asset for you as you apply it to a product that you are creating for yourself. Now, Tim, when I met you, you were specifically sampling your whiskey-flavored product at the show. At least that's the platter that I gravitated to. (laughs) I don't know why. How did that come about? Because that's clearly a niche within a niche. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. Again, going to Chicago, it did expose me to the foodie world. And so uh, I'm dealing with a lot of dynamic chefs like Stephanie Izard, Rick Bayless, Charlie Trotter, Art Smith, Paul Kahn. I was able to see what these chefs were doing in the kitchen and how they were able to manipulate food that we're all familiar with, but they were able to take it to that next level. And it got me thinking, how can I take maple syrup to that next level? Someone that had asked me what made me think about barrel aging maple syrup. And I thought, you know, they just asked me (laughs) and I, I didn't have very much time to think about it. But the bottom line was I wanted to make maple syrup sexier. I wanted to take it to that next level that would make it different. And so, like you say, a niche within a niche. And so I talked to my friend Paul Kahn and he's a chef owner of one-off hospitality in Chicago, Publican and Blackbird restaurants. And uh, I said something to Paul about it. I said, what do you think about the idea of me barrel aging my maple syrups to pick up maybe the notes from the barrel? And he said, God, I think that's a great idea. And so the first thing I did is I reached out to another friend of mine who's a mixologist, Adam Seeger. And I asked Adam if he knew of any small batch rum distillers here in the United States. And He said, do you have a pen and a piece of paper? He said, call uh, Phil Pritchard, Pritchard's Distillery out of Kelso, Tennessee, and tell him what you're looking for. And uh, lo and behold, Phil was game. And I drove from Indiana through Kentucky down to Tennessee and picked up a truckload of (laughs) rum barrels 
brought it back to the farm, and that's how we started barrel aging our maple syrups. I know only a little bit about this industry from my husband. I told you in the pre-interview, I was talking to him about the fact that I was going to be chatting with you. And it's my understanding that these barrels can only be used once. So after they've been used for rum or whiskey, that's all they can do. They have to get new barrels for the next batch. So it seems to me there's quite a supply then of barrels for you. Is that correct? Well, to the contrary, actually. Your husband's correct. The bourbon barrels can only be used for bourbon one time, but there's a lot of breweries throughout the United States that are aging their beers in these barrels now. And so there's a huge demand for these used barrels. So the availability is not quite as great as you might think it is. Now, many of the bourbon barrels that are available after they've been uh, the bourbon's been aged, a lot of them, if they're not going to breweries, they're being shipped over to Scotland. And that's what they put scotch in, is used bourbon barrels. Oh, no kidding. Yes. <laughs> yep. Really interesting. So our barrels are the best quality, it sounds like. Well, the bourbon barrels, yeah. In the United States. Yeah, the bourbon barrels are as well. And there's also a renaissance that's happening right now where, just like in the brewing industry, you had all these microbreweries going back 20 years ago or so, and then there was just this huge boom. And so the same exact thing's happening with the distilleries. A lot of states are making it more feasible for someone to get their distilling license. And so there's distilleries that are just coming up throughout the United States. And one false preconception that I think that a lot of people have is they feel that the only place that bourbon can be made is in Kentucky. And that's not true. You can make bourbon throughout the United States. Now, you're not allowed to label something bourbon if it's made out of the outside of the United States. But you can make bourbon throughout the United States. And so there's a lot of small batch bourbon distillers that are popping up all throughout the United States. Oh, very interesting. Let's continue on a little bit with the product development. So you get these barrels, you bring them back. And had you already tested or were you a little bit gambling that this truckload of barrels that you now have are going to work? Yeah, I, you know, we were one of the first doing this. And so we didn't know what kind of results we would get. So initially we were aging our maple syrup in barrels for six months and we were getting some nice flavor notes off of those barrels. But um, accidentally, um, I was doing some housekeeping in the Maple House and there was a 65 gallon cask that probably had about 30 gallons of maple syrup in it. And it was a, a cask that had Applejack brandy in it. And it was over by the fireplace that I built in the Maple House, sitting really close to it. And I thought it was an empty barrel. So when I went to move it, it was real heavy. And I opened it up and we tasted it. And it had been in there for about a year over by the fireplace. It's a Rumford fireplace, the largest Rumford fireplace in North America. And so we had had a lot of fires going, a lot of intense heat. And the flavor that that Applejack brandy produced was three or four times more flavorful than the other barrels that we had aged maple syrup in for six months. So that told me right there that there's something going on between that fire and the barrel. So we coined it fire infusion and we started to put all of our barrels next to the Rumford fireplace. And so inside of these barrels, whether it doesn't matter what it is, whether it's rum, bourbon, brandy, whatever it is, there is what's called the devil's cut. And the devil's cut is the liquor 
that's trapped in the wood of the barrel. And a distiller will tell you, depending on what size the cask is, but a 55-gallon cask, a distiller will tell you that they estimate that they lose between four to five gallons of the liquor just to the barrel itself. So after you empty the barrel, there's still four to five gallons that's trapped in the walls of the barrel, in the staves. And so what we figured out was that by heating the outside of the barrel, it was chasing the devil's cut into the syrup. And that's what gave it that intense flavor. Wow. Who would have known? Yeah. yeah. It was like an accident that that happened. And it's producing because, give biz listeners, you haven't tasted this, but I have. And you're right. It's not just like a little undertone, but it's not overpowering either. It's not too much. But you certainly can taste it. It's absolutely delicious, as of course I've already said. But so interesting. Thank you for sharing the story about how the products developed. And then from there, of course, you tested probably how long you should actually keep it there to get exactly the flavor you're looking for, et cetera. Series of testing before you finalized on exactly what your product would be. The infused product, let me say. That's correct. That's correct. And then once we discovered how to do this, I started reaching out to various chefs and restaurants to see if there would be a market for signature barrels. So we've had some great success. I mean, with that, we've we've done uh, signature barrels for uh, Sir Richard Branson with Virgin. As a matter of fact, Virgin's very first American hotel is in Chicago. And we did a bourbon. Actually, we aged it for about three years in a bourbon barrel. And then we uh, also had Madagascar vanilla beans that we infused in it as well. And so that was exclusively bottled for Virgin Hotels in Chicago. And then we've done several other signature barrels around the country for different uh, chefs and, and that kind of thing. So that also gets you really into a niche, a specific, because you can customize it for, of course, larger sales, larger volume sales. But it allows them also then to be presenting things that are unique to them when you get into the chefs. Yeah, so, yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, local has been kind of a hot button for the last four or five years. So being able to do something like this, especially when it's like a local distiller, for example, Breckenridge Distillery in Breckenridge, Colorado, we've done some signature barrels for the Four Seasons in Vail, Colorado, using a Breckenridge bourbon, a local distiller's barrel. So we've done that. We've also done a Breckenridge uh, bourbon barrel for the Little Nell in, Na- in uh, pardon me, in Aspen, Colorado. And so it's kind of a cool local spin to it as well. And, and the chefs really like that. Now, is this all because you're reaching out to them or are they hearing about you and now are you getting inbound calls for the signature barrels? Yeah, we made the initial contact, but now it's a pretty small world and now we're starting to get calls from chefs. I had Chef James Sampson uh, from the Marco Island Marriott uh, reached out to me and he wanted to do a signature barrel for the Marco Island Marriott. And I've had Sherry Yard in California. Sherry was a Wolfgang Puck's pastry chef for many, many years. And so through word of mouth, Sherry reached out to me and we're collaborating on barrel-aged maple syrup for her new concept in Culver City, California. Well, that's exciting because you're getting to know a lot of these big name people. It is neat because I'll give you like one example. Chef Art Smith, several years ago, he had heard about our barrel-aged maple syrup and he was hosting Oprah Winfrey's farewell brunch at his restaurant, Table 52. So Chef Art had asked if I would be interested in providing some of our rum 
barrel-aged maple syrup for that event. And so we were happy to do that. And uh, when we dropped it off, Chef had asked us to stick around for brunch. And we politely declined just because we had the long drive coming back. I know a lot of people would say, well, you're crazy. Why didn't you stay? Well, we ended up staying. We ended up sitting next to a couple that Chef Art introduced us to. And all we knew, it was Joe and Cynthia, Germanato. That's the name. And and so we talked with them. They had a lot of questions about our farm and that kind of thing. And then they were the ones that insisted that we stay and sit with them during brunch. So we did that. As we're being served chicken and waffles, we're getting to know one another. And I said, well, now, you guys know why we're here and, and we supply Chef with uh, our maple syrup. And we know you know Chef, but how do you how do you guys know Oprah? And Cynthia said, "Well, our daughter has been on her show," and that just kind of went over my head. And I said, "So is she a producer?" You say she's been on your sh- the, her show. Is she a producer? And she said, "No, she's actually been a guest a couple times." And I said, "Well, then that begs the question: Who is your daughter?" And Joe, in kind of a sheepish way, he said, "Well, you know, we don't go around telling a lot of people this, but our daughter's Lady Gaga." The waffles almost came out of my mouth, and I said, your daughter is Lady Gaga. And and Joe and Cynthia said, yeah. And so uh, you never know. You never know. We're just maple syrup producers, you know, and here we are sitting at the table with Joe and Cynthia Germanato. Very nice people, by the way. That's what took me by surprise more than anything, not just because they're Lady Gaga's mom and dad, but they were just so down to earth, so very, very nice and genuine. I don't know why I wouldn't have expected that, but mm-hmm. I just, they were just super folks. An hour or so later, Oprah came over and she sat at our table and, and we had brunch with her. So that was kind of surreal. Yeah. So this has opened into and given you opportunities to see different sides of the world, if you will, celebrity world and restaurant world and all of that, that you might not have ever been exposed to before. So that's kind of an added plus for it you. It is. And it's it's just one of those things that you just kind of laugh about it from the standpoint of you going like, we make maple syrup and we would never have imagined dealing with all the great restaurants and the people and, and that kind of thing. And one of our other customers in Chicago is Michael Jordan Steakhouse. Well, they serve our maple syrup there. Apparently, Mr. Jordan likes the syrup enough that if this is the second year that he's ordered 48 of our B-grade bottles to put in a uh, gift basket that he gives to all the NBA owners and coaches. So that's kind of a cool thing. All right. So all these names, all this exciting stuff, like I want to be you right now. (laughs) What is there that might have been challenging along the way? Something that You know, because it all sounds so great, but there had to be some stumbling blocks. Can you bring us to some time that was more of a challenge and what you did to overcome the situation? Yeah, you know, when we started about eight years ago, if your listeners recall, I mean, the economy, uh, it's, it's a challenge today still, but the economy really took a dive and the systems integration business that we were in, it struggled as well. And so I was looking to shift my attention into something else other than the systems integration business. And so that was quite challenging, making that transition, because we still had to devote our time to the systems integration business, but at the same time trying to build this other business and knowing that Chicago was the market that we really wanted to penetrate and get into. There were many times where Angie and I were driving up to Chicago on a Wednesday and then coming home. Wednesday evening. That was 10 hours on the road each day because we didn't have the time to really stay in Chicago during that period of time. So it was quite grueling. And we did that for several months. 
And then we found somebody in Chicago that could run the farmer's market for us on Wednesday. So we were still going up for a few years every Saturday during the summer season. And so that was quite challenging, quite, quite challenging. From a physical standpoint, it was quite challenging. And from a mental standpoint, you know. Sure. And those were the days when you were overlapping the businesses. You were winding down one of them and ramping up the other one, right? That's exactly right. And then ultimately, the maple syrup business, we got our numbers high enough that we could do it full time, you know, focusing on the Chicago market and then using Chicago as a springboard. We consider Chicago our home market, even though we're five hours south of Chicago. Right, because it's the largest market close to you. Right. So let's talk about farmers markets and trade shows. Are you still on that intensive schedule every week in the summer? And I saw you, what, in December at a show. So are you still doing that as a primary way to get your product out and exposed to the general consumer? Yeah, we are. As a matter of fact, we're ramping things up. This year, we focused on 14 weekly summer farmers markets in Colorado, Utah, and Wyoming. Our goal was to engage local people to run these markets for us while the farm supported these markets with getting inventory shipped out on a regular basis. And it worked out really well. I mean, we expected and anticipated that there would be some challenges, personnel challenges, things like that. But uh, lo and behold, it was not quite as challenging as we thought it would be in terms of having people involved and not running into as many personnel issues and, and that type of thing. And so people have really expressed that they love doing it. They love getting the product out there, letting people sample it because of the reaction that people have, because it's such a unique, one-of-a-kind product. And so we're going to take it to another level, and we're going to try to do 30 to 40 weekly markets in the Pacific Northwest in the summer of 2017. Oh, wow. And so you're right. You're absolutely right. When you start adding on staff, and not only staff, you're now adding on distance. You know, and I, I know they're not staffed like they're working with you right on, on site, but they're people that are representing your brand. So, and now you're not even there when they're representing your brand. What direction do you give them so that they're doing exactly at the shows what you're expecting them to be doing? Clearly sampling, which we all know is so important to your product. Right. And brand recognition is a very important part of our scope of the business. If you go to downtown Salt Lake City Farmer's Market and you see our stand, and then you go up to Park City, Utah, and you see our stand, or you go to Jackson Hole, Wyoming, or you go to Vail, Colorado, each stand is going to look identical. The focus that we've shifted to is also my image, the image of Tim Burton, the maple syrup producer. And so every one of these farmers markets has the image of myself on a banner as well, because ultimately what we'd like to do is have, I would like to go to each one of these markets and talk to people about what we do and how we do it and making the maple syrup and that kind of thing. Like, kind of like, you know, meet the maple producer type of thing. So right. the, the branding is a very, very important part of it for us. So you've got the branding, you've got sampling. What else do you feel is necessary when you're doing a show like that? One of the things that we do, we call everybody that uh, works these markets, we call them VIFs, V-I-F, Very Important Farmhands. And so we want everybody to come to the farmer's markets or events with their plaid shirts on and that kind of thing and give it that kind of that farmish feeling. 
we really try to do a good job in picking the right people that are going to be energetic. They're going to be outgoing. They're going to be asking people, would you like to try our bourbon barrel-aged maple syrup? Because a lot of times if you say to somebody, would you like to try some maple syrup? Oh, no thanks, you know, or it's not as quite as intriguing. But when you say, would you like to try our bourbon barrel-aged maple syrup? That typically stops people in their tracks and they'll go, what? I've never heard of bourbon barrel-aged maple syrup. And then if you can get a sample in their hands and then they taste it, then there's another level of reaction. So do you have written guidelines or something that you talk them through when someone's first starting out so that it's very structured and so you have consistency from show to show to show with different groups of people? Yeah, we sure do. That's kind of an interesting transition that we're going through right now. This summer, I was able to work with people coming in or my cousin Ruthie, who lives in Littleton, Colorado. She would work the markets or I have a friend, John Veratis in Castle Rock, Colorado. He would work with people. So we, we had the opportunity where we could actually be there and have a new person come in and just listen to what we're saying and how we're saying it and all that kind of thing. Well, that's going to be really challenging if you've got, if you're shooting for 30 to 40 markets, how in the world can you get that many people trained? So another friend of mine, Wayne Johnson out of Chicago is creating a sales training video basically. And we're going to have that on our website. Everybody that we hire to work these markets will be given a like a password and they'll be able to click in and watch the video on, you know, what are the most common questions that you're going to hear when you're working at a farmer's market. And uh, if you don't have the answer, just let whoever it is know that you don't have the answer, but you'll get the answer if they want to come back next week and, and I'll have that answer for you. And then do you have certain levels of expectation in terms of performance, bottle sold or however that would be? That's a part of the business that can be quite challenging as well, because what we try to focus on is a certain demographic uh, place that might be more of a destination point where people are coming in for vacation, that type of thing. So it has to do with the demographics as well. Some markets are probably going to perform better than others, just always. You know, you might have stronger markets and lighter markets. And certainly when people are being introduced to the product, like the first week it shows up on a farmer's market, there may or may not be interest. But as you continue to be there, it's going to grow too. So you're right. It is kind of hard to compare one against another. They're each pretty much unique. Yeah, they are unique. But then we're able to monitor our sales through Square. We use Square as a point of sale. And so we're able to take a look at our numbers from the past, and then we can have a, a certain degree of expectation for those. Well, this is so interesting, and I could continue on with a number of conversations here. This could go off in so many directions, but I think we're going to have to proceed on into our reflection section. And this is another look at you and things that you're doing, just like Square that you were just talking about, that have helped you to be successful with your product. If you were to call on or identify one trait that you have naturally that you keep calling on to help you succeed, what would that be? I would say just the tenacity to keep going and keep moving forward and being able to adapt. That's a big thing. You know, I just kind of take that for granted that we can shift and change and adapt. I have found out that that's not something that's easily done by some people. And so I, I certainly appreciate that a lot more being able to adapt. You know, I've noticed the same type of thing because a lot of people will get started and they feel like, and this is one of the reasons why I ask people about challenges, because they see where everybody is at one point in time. They don't see all the background of things that have been challenging or those points when you need to adapt as you're talking about. And that's a lot of times where people will fall off. 
they'll say, oh, I just can't do this. I'm not cut out to do this. And they'll stop. Instead of what you're talking about and having the tenacity and being able to adapt and then be able to carry on. You found the solution or as you're talking about driving 10 hours in a day, you just bit the bullet and did it because you needed to, knowing it wasn't going to have to be forever. Right. That's just it. You know, you, you just, you know, this is kind of funny. I, I don't know if, if I really should say this or not, but I'm going to. In some cases, <laughs> ignorance never gets enough credit. And what I mean by that <laughs> is if you knew better before you started, then you probably wouldn't attempt to, to do it. You know, Zig Ziglar says, is, if you wait until all the lights are green before you go to town, you'll never leave your house. And so sometimes you just have to do it. You just have to go and know that, you know, you could figure it out as you're going along. One book that came out over 20 years ago, but I just recently read it, was Sam Walton's book, Made in America. There's no way, I don't believe, there's, there's any way that Sam Walton could have dreamt what his business would grow to. So it's not like, he certainly was a smart man, absolutely. But he had tenacity and he had a drive and determination. But I can guarantee you that there was no way that he could have perceived how big that company was going to grow to. You know, I can't speak for him, but he'd probably get a chuckle out of ignorance never gets enough credit. <laughs> I agree with you. You just don't know. I think a lot of us, wherever we are in our business life, didn't initially think that that was going to be the end goal, or at least where you are in that part of time, because I'm one to say there isn't an end goal. You know, you just keep building and there's always a next step. But one step leads to another, leads to another. It's a lot of small steps on top of each other that help you to be successful and get you to where you are. Just like you, you know, reaching out to restaurants and different chefs and all of that and learning and then they connect you with someone else and then someone connects you to someone else and the next thing you know, you're sitting having lunch with Lady Gaga's parents. I mean, who was to know? <laughs> exactly, yeah. And so Gift Biz listeners, just as you're listening to the podcast today, you can also listen to audiobooks with ease. And Tim was just talking about Sam Walton's Made in America my guess is that might already be on an audiobook. I have teamed up with Audible for you to be able to get an audiobook just like this on me for free. All you need to do is go to giftbizbook.com and make a selection of your book. All right, Tim, now I would like to have you dare to dream. I'd like to present you with a virtual gift. It's a magical box containing unlimited possibilities for your future. So this is your dream or your goal of almost unreachable heights that you would wish to obtain. Please accept this gift and open it in our presence. What is inside your box? Well, you know, I, uh, first and foremost, the health of my family and myself through this journey. I don't have a certain dollar amount that I want to achieve in five or 10 years type of thing. I mean, obviously, being financially dependent all of our goals is is to to reach that level of achievement but when it really comes down to it it's your health and so i would say that through this journey is maintaining good health loving family and, and that kind of thing and that is one other huge perk to this business is our kids are involved with our business as well our, our adult children you know they have kids of their own so we very, are very very fortunate that we can all work together and that could be a little challenging at times you know family as well but uh we're really fortunate with that. And so I just hope that we can continue to do that as a family and 
maintain good health. Sounds wonderful. I mean, I'm looking at some more Norman Rockwell moments with you and your family, just like you had back when with the Millers. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. So I'm sure that we have piqued the interest of a lot of our listeners now, and they want to see more and possibly even purchase some of your syrups. Where would the single place be that they should go? If people are just listening now, they're not getting over to the show notes page right now. Where would you suggest that they go and learn more about you and your product? Well, I would say our website is probably the place to go, which would be burtonsmaplewoodfarm.com. You could find out more information about our farm. There's some really, really great recipes that are on there. There are some other great applications. You know, a lot of people think about maple syrup and they think about breakfast, but really the maple syrup that we produce goes beyond breakfast. It's fantastic on salmon, Brussels sprouts, baby carrots, green beans, savory applications. The barrel H maple syrups are still great on just vanilla ice cream. I had a lady in Kansas City. We were at an event in Kansas City and she said to me, she said, Tim, I'd like a bottle of your Kentucky bourbon maple syrup. I'm going to go home, caramelize onions, and then put that on a burger. And I just thought, well, that's brilliant. I've never thought of that. Most of us don't think about taking maple syrup and in some way adding it to a, a hamburger. But that really sounded good. And that was the very first thing I made when I got back to the farm. <laughs> and how was it? It was phenomenal. As good as you anticipated? <laughs> Even better, even better. Yeah, it was <laughs> no surprise really there. Well, Tim, thank you so much. You know, I had just met you and I didn't know a lot of this story. It was so incredibly interesting. And also just understanding your transition from technology into something more earthy and all of that and what you've developed into is such a fascinating story. And I wish you much success in the future. May your candle always burn bright. Thank you, Sue. It was great being with you. Where are you in your business building journey? Whether you're just starting out or already running a business and you want to know your setup for success, find out by taking the Gift Biz Quiz. Access the quiz from your computer at bit.ly slash giftbizquiz or from your phone by texting Gift Biz Quiz to 44222. Thanks for listening and be sure to join us for the next episode. Today's show is sponsored by The Ribbon Print Company. Looking for a new income source for your gift business? Customization is more popular now than ever. Brand your products with your logo or print a Happy Birthday Jessica ribbon to add to a gift right at checkout. It's all done right in your shop or craft studio in seconds. Check out theribbonprintcompany.com for more information. After you listen to the show, if you like what you're hearing, make sure to jump over and subscribe to the show on iTunes. That way you'll automatically get the newest episodes when they go live. And thank you to those who have already left a rating and review. By subscribing, rating, and reviewing, you help to increase the visibility of Gift Biz Unwrapped. It's a great way to pay it forward to help others with their entrepreneurial journey as well.